Hey, Scotty, on the 13th of March in 2022, Peach Challenge is on, False Creek, and we're both doing it. And today, on this episode of Half Wheelin', we have got a guy who is across absolutely everything, Dr. Stephen Lane. And this is a chat that is amazing. It was great, wasn't it? Oh, it's awesome. I loved he's done it. He's an outstanding performer at this event. Not that it's a pure race, but he goes off with the fastest groups. But also, he's also a coach. So he brings in all the considerations that can help you have a great day preparing, training, fueling, mentality, tricks of the trade, the whole bit. Well, let's start bloody tapping away on this climb, shall we? Let's go. Scotty, we've struck up a partnership. Listeners may know in the last few episodes, uh, we've given quite a few mentions to Peaks Challenge, Falls Creek, and Bicycle Network to sort of promote the event, the fantastic event that is uh, taking place uh, on the 13th of March next year. You know, we're particularly excited about because we've committed to do it. Now, one of the guys who plays an integral role in that behind the scenes, but he is a bit of a face for Peaks Challenge. He is one of the wave leaders that sort of roll down the mountain very early on in the piece. And his name is Dr. Stephen Lane. But before we fully introduce Stephen, I want to run through his palomares. He is a director and sports scientist of human performance technology or HP Tech, uh, which is a cycling specific coaching business. Uh, He's completed a PhD in biomedical sciences with a focus on exercise, nutrition and training adaptation. He's got over 12 years experience as a professional coach, working with a variety of successful athletes, ranging from UCI World Tour riders, elite under 23 national champions and masters hour record breaking athletes. Stephen has also been pivotal in assisting up and coming cyclists as they progress from club racing to being NRS riders and taking age group masters athletes to victories in road, track, time trial, cyclocross and the mountain bike disciplines. He developed HP Tech into one of Australia's most sought-after cycling-specific coaching resources. And as I mentioned, he's also a prominent figure in the lead-up to and day of the event that we've spent some time talking about here on Half Wheeling, Peaks Challenge Falls Creek. And we are delighted to have him joining us on this episode. Dr. Stephen Lane, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, lads. I'm ready to go talk all things uh, Peaks Challenge 2022 training. Before we get stuck right into the Peaks Challenge, Steve, we'd like to sort of know a little bit about you and your history, a little bit about your journey in cycling. So can you take it as far back as you can? You're clearly a guy who loves to ride his bike, but you've had a bit of a lifelong involvement in it, haven't you? Yeah, I've got a, mine's a pretty good tale, actually. So I'm a country boy. I grew up just on the outskirts of Colac, sort of on the way to Warrnambool from Melbourne. I uh, was always into sports as a kid, never really specifically bike riding until sort of uh, early 20s nearly. I, I wanted to be a chiropractor or an osteopath growing up, had pretty bad marks in VCE and couldn't get into those courses because they got pretty high interscores and um, ended up doing myotherapy down in Melbourne. And that's kind of where my path to riding starts because driving back to Colac every weekend in my VL Commodore, I lost all the points on the license and had to buy a push bike. <laughs> and that's pretty much how I started riding bikes. Next thing I was doing uh, duathlons and did pretty well in sort of age group duathlons and then triathlons, raced some half Ironmans and that's about as long as I got. My girlfriend at the time was working for Giant Bikes and ended up going to bike races with her because I never saw her otherwise. And then I started winning some races in cycling and thought, oh, I'll just stick to this. 
ended up trying to do osteo still and did uh, I did human movement at RMIT in Bandura in Melbourne and ended up at that point in time was uh, racing triathlon. So I kind of loved the human movement, sports science stuff. Uh, I was a mature age student in that. So I kind of topped the class and beat all the youngsters that didn't really apply themselves that well and managed to get a scholarship for my honours and then my PhD. And retrospectively, now I sort of look at it and think myself pretty lucky because my supervisor was John Hawley, who was essentially one of the head you know, gurus in carbohydrate and fat metabolism and protein synthesis in the world, pretty much. And, you know, all his contacts are the guys and all those white research papers you read about sports performance. His wife is Louise Burke, at the nutritionist at the AIS. And I kind of went down that path. Luckily, finished it, did sort of a bunch of studies, trying to get some money under the belt as a PhD student. I coached a couple of athletes here and there from a local bike shop, got pretty lucky with a young fella called Brendan Canty, who went pro in the click of a finger, and then sort of had more athletes come on board with me. And by the end of it, I sort of back of a notebook added up how many athletes I need at whatever cost and went, oh, I could do this as a job. (laughs) So did what I needed to do, and that's what I'm doing now. I think that's nearly... 10 years ago and you know I've got three or four other coaches with me now at HP Tech some of the best guys in the country I think as coaches and mate I pinch myself every morning thinking this is a pretty darn good job to be honest um, from yeah dealing with peaks challenge that's some of the great times of the year when I deal with uh, you know sort of recreational athletes I suppose looking to get around a big long course through to you know I've got crazy guys breaking 24-hour world records in a couple of weeks time so, yeah, a bit of a variety, but, you know, I love doing it. What about the actual performance for yourself, Steve? Is, you did some NRS riding yourself. How did that No, I've never actually raced NRS myself. I've right. kind of, because I got into it late, um, I race mostly masters racing and sort of, you know, the A-grade stuff around town. But I guess I coach all the young NRS guys and I see the numbers they put out and I'm like, I don't even want to try and compete with that. Um, mm. You know, I'm no spring chicken anymore, that's for sure. I'm 41, but still, amazingly, my numbers are probably as, you know, better than they've ever been. Just sort of recently, I've sort of gravitated. I think I bought a gravel bike about four years ago and fell in love with that, just being off the tarmac away from cars and just exploring. And especially since COVID happened, I moved back to the country from Melbourne, where I was down in Melbourne for 20 years. I've been back here for sort of 18 months in the country, just at the base of the Otways. And I never knew my backyard when I was a kid was so good because mm. I can go on a six-hour bike ride and not see a single person and see some amazing places up in the Otways. So these days I've kind of gone from a, I guess back in the day I was a time trialer slash road racer. These days I've got the endurance bug and I'm doing some ultra events. So I did uh, like the weekend before Peaks Challenge. So for Peaks Challenge, I was completely cooked. I'd just done a race from Melbourne to Albury called the Vic Divide 550, which is 550 Ks. Um, here's the killer though, with about 11,000 metres of vertical climbing up and over <laughs> Mount Buller. That sounds um, pretty tame. Yeah, well, that was a 30, I think it was 38 hours and 14 minutes straight through with a 20 minute nap at the top of Mount Buller. Oh, wow. 20 minutes, Stephen. 20 minutes. <laughs> you could have cut that I down. Had, I had to wait for my dehydrated meal to heat up. So, oh, I, oh, sure. so I had a 20 minute nap. <laughs> That's awesome. 
But uh, yeah, look, that's sort of me these days. I love the long stuff. I've got another one called Mally Blast in a few weeks' time. Hopefully, I'm lining up for that. So that's a thousand Ks. So, you know, four years ago, though, when I did peaks for the first time, 235 kilometers was the longest ride I'd ever done, and it scared the crap out of me. Mm. But now, 235 Ks is just a, you know, just get Walking it done and get home and pretty much. <laughs> hey, Stephen, before we move on, you know, you talked about some of your events previously that you used to do, time trial and road racing and that. Has there been a performance that you've done? Two-part question. Has there been a performance that you've done that was the most, you know, that you can identify as really deeply satisfying? And and also, has there been a performance that you've been a part of as a coach that might not necessarily have been the biggest performance, but something that was really rewarding for you as a coach? So those two sides of the coin there? Yeah, I guess um, as a coach, one's probably the easiest to answer. The biggest, I guess, you know, worldwide sort of scene was Bridie O'Donnell's hour record that we did. Uh, I don't even know what year it was now. I'm going to say 2015 or 16 or something, maybe a bit later, um, where she actually broke the women's UCI hour record down in Adelaide during the Tour Down Under sort of week in Adelaide. Uh, like that was a big build up, a lot of pressure. You're sort of standing in the middle of a velodrome, which is something relatively new to me. I don't do a heap of track stuff, but guiding her through that and actually breaking the record was, you know, I guess probably the most serotonin or whatever dopamine or whatever it was flowing through my body. It's probably the most I've ever had in that sort of one moment when she broke it. But yeah, look, I, I get a lot of joy. I've had so many other athletes, like just masters guys. It's seeing the ones that put in the work, like they're never ones that say, oh man, like I didn't really feel like it today. Like I've got some athletes that just give me a reality check and make me look lazy because I'm like, man, you work full time, you know, you got kids, but you're still knocking out 20 hour weeks and you're working really hard and they achieve their goal at the end, which might be a, a master's world championship gold medal or something like that. So there's numerous ones of those and it's hard to sort of pinpoint one, but they're definitely ones where I just, you know, it blows me away. Luckily that I'm in the position I'm in, I get to be part of you know, vicariously living through their victories and their hard work. Myself, uh, I've always been the bridesmaid in races. I always come second most of the time. I've always <laughs> wanted to win a national masters time trial champs in through the age groups of starting at 30 to 35 and 35 to 40, I think six times. And funnily enough, every single time to an athlete I coached, I came second. And I always oh, wanted to win that. Wow. <laughs> Hang on a minute. In, uh, Hang on. This yeah. story's got a whole lot richer, Ross. <laughs> it's always always someone I coach always beat me. But in 2019, they had a course in Adelaide and I saw the course for the road race and the time trial. And I instantly read the course. I saw the profile and had a little fire inside me and said, that's my course that I'm going to win this one. And that year I won. So I won the TT, had fastest time of the day. And then the road race, I um, was probably in the best form I've ever had and ended up winning the road race easily. Well, not easily, but it was a hilltop finish. And I sort of was definitely the strongest man on the course that day. And that gave me champion of champions that year. And um, yeah, that's always one. I'm like, all right, that was my master's champs. But they're on again in 2022 a little bit. Oh, they sort of are. They're kind of trying to make up for the 2021s and have them at Buninyong for the Grand fondo thing. That Buninyong course, that elite's course up Mount Buninyong really suits me as well. So I've kind of got a bit of fire in my belly again. But I'm trying to balance riding stupidly long distances and go fast at the same time. And I haven't gone super fast in a long time. So I need to really, you know, they're two polars when it comes to going hard and going long. It's hard to train for both. So 
I need mm. to figure out which one I want more, I think. It's an interesting balance, that, isn't it? Do you call on those past experiences for those fast Ks that you'll need for that road stuff? How do you think that will sort of formulate? If you don't have someone guiding you or you're really self-driven and you really, you know, write it down and check the boxes, you just do what you always do and do what you enjoy. I don't necessarily enjoy doing the short, hard stuff. So I've actually got one of the guys I used to coach who's a you know, master's track uh, world champion. I got him on board because when I was talking about athletes before that are uh, goal-driven and get up at five o'clock in the morning and knock out a super hard ergo session before they go to work, he's probably a standout one where I was like, man, you're driven inside. So I've got him, as he coaches a few athletes these days. He's up in Newcastle, Ben Neppel, his name is. And he... Uh, He's the one I've called on for a bit of accountability to put some sessions in and get my ass into gear to do some hard stuff. Nice. So, hey Stephen, what would be an example of one of those hard type sessions that you you know you don't like doing typically? What would be a, a typical example of a session? Oh, anything under about a five minute effort, I sort of hate. I love my my <laughs> favourite session of all times. It's probably eight by five minutes on one minute recovery. So on the trainer, yeah. you jump on, you knock out five minute effort. Pretty much it, it's about threshold. Threshold are a little bit above, but you only get one minute off and then you've yeah. got to do eight of them. Yeah. Most people will get through six and then blow up and because they didn't pace it well enough, they've gone a bit hard. Getting through all eight of them is if you get the number you want, like above threshold and with only one minute recovery and you get through all eight, that's a pretty big benchmark session, I reckon. And that mm. session came from a lot of the research trials I used to do at uni where I'd recruit subjects and we'd do crazy stuff to them, like take muscle biopsies out of their legs and things like that. That was mm. a key session we used to use as a marker and then, you know, take a biopsy afterwards sort of thing. So that's one of my favourites. But, yeah, I call anything properly anaerobic is probably under about three minutes. So doing repeated three-minute efforts. These days with the endurance stuff I do, like I can't even, I used to be able to get my heart rate up to 190 pretty regularly and mm. my threshold heart rate's probably about 175 and that's sort of my time trial heart rate or if I'm racing up a hill. But these days I'm so aerobically trained doing all this big long stuff that that top end just isn't there. Like my legs mm. fade before I'm actually huffing and puffing and mm. I'm producing lactate. So I'm sort of starting to hurt everywhere. Um, mm. So I need to work on that is my goal at the moment. Did you write mm. that down, Scotty? Eight got five all. minute efforts, okay. So I've that's... got it all. <laughs> for three peaks, though, for most guys, I kind of avoid a lot of the really hard stuff. Three peaks is such an endurance day that if you actually learn to go hard, like oh, really hard, as in build up that anaerobic engine, you're kind of prone to blowing yourself up because all of a sudden the lower numbers feel a bit easier. And you're like, oh, I can get up this hill at this, you know, a little bit higher number now. But by the end of the day, that actually catches up with you yep. and you you really fade coming up the back of WTF climb. So mm. I kind of, my programs for, for Bicycle Network are very sort of long, steady, just sub-threshold efforts. I think that's the best way for people to approach it if they're coming from a, you know, doing this long stuff for the first time. Well, what we do have now is someone to really throw our weight behind um, getting into the Masters uh, next year. So you're mm-hmm. our man. Mm. We might even get a half wheel and jersey for Stephen just to wear during it. Just I don't he, know. Yeah, just as he crosses the line, yeah. number one, just yep. put the hat on him, you know, yep. put the T-shirt on him. He, his heart rate still, it is 190 at this stage, but no, no, we've got to get the sponsors uh, in. And we'll claim it. We'll claim the victory yeah. as, you know, we're, we're half wheel and zone. As long as it's a nice aero cut jersey, boys, I'm all in it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we can do that. 
it's probably as good a time as any to start the discussion about Peaks Challenge. Uh, we mentioned before, Steve, that you're a bit of a face of Peaks Challenge for Bicycle Network. Um, you do cultivate quite a few of the training programs and you are a go-to man in terms of nutrition and preparation. But Scotty, I just thought I'd reference Stephen's 2021 time, uh, now wearing bib one. Bearing in mind this information, um, we'll go back to what he spoke about earlier. He had dead legs, so nine hours and four minutes with uh, with average legs is probably nothing to sneeze about. I wouldn't have thought. Well, 2021 is a bad one actually, because that one I got dropped going up Hotham. I was with the eight-hour group to the top there. They just dropped me near the top because I was definitely feeling the 600k ride I did the weekend before. <laughs> but then, it, sadly, just coming out of dinner plane rest stop, a poor guy crashed, and I was sitting with him for about 45 minutes while the ambulance came. Oh, right. So you can take 45 minutes well, we can off trim that a time. bit off that then. Bloody oh. Tell them, that, what's my fast one? Have you got that one there? That one's I didn't, better. I didn't look back at any of the previous uh, times. Maybe I should have done a bit more research than that. Yeah, well, there's no, a massive like, asterisk next to that. I'm the, suddenly uh, understanding how I'm going to go sub eight. <laughs> I'm just going to sit. I'm going to sit with someone waiting for an imaginary bus to come for three hours. Yeah, it, oh mate, yeah, it's a big day. You'll want a bus at some point, but you just got to keep <laughs> charging on. <laughs> for those who are catching up on a little bit of the details about Peaks Challenge, 235 yes. k's, 4,000 plus meters of climbing for the day. The peaks are Tawonga Gap, Mount Hotham, and the back of Falls, which Steve alluded to earlier. Uh, what the fuck corner, which is just a pleasant experience with 200Ks in the legs. Can we take you back to your first encounter with Peaks Challenge, Steve? What was that like? Yeah, well, it's actually like I've been racing bikes for so long. Like I remember triathlons. I used to nearly be peeing myself on the start line. I was that nervous. I'm pretty sure mm. I did pee myself actually, like most guys do a little <laughs> dribble maybe. But three peaks on the start line. Oh, I was definitely – more nervous than than I normally would have been for a standard old race. Uh, my first one was I don't know what year it was. It would have, I think I've done it four times now. I think um, so four consecutive years. I was an eight-hour wave leader on the start line. I was more worried about the cold descent. I hate being cold, and that first descent in sort of semi-dark is a bit daunting to a lot of people. I think so. I was kind of like, crap. How fast are we actually going to be going down this hill? Because the eight-hour group's not necessarily – it's kind of free-for-all. It's just kind of like whichever guys can hang on to the fastest guys is the eight-hour group. Yep. Like, I can't control it. I'm trying to find wheels, so I'm saving energy for later on. I can't let a group go ride with the guys that want to do eight hours because then there might be four or five of us and all the strong guys aren't there to pull us along anymore. So mm. I was all that stuff I didn't really understand too well. But, no, I did enough training and I knew I'd get through it. But, yeah, that WTF corner the first time, I think it was a nice sunny year the first year I did it. And it was just – it was kind of ideal conditions. I think we came in in 7.45, I think, that year we did. So the sub – the eight-hour mm. group. We usually try and deliver them to the bottom of WTF corner where even if they blow up, they can still go eight hours. Um, yeah, so 7.45 first year. Mate, it's – I guess I learnt, yeah, that was the longer trial I think I've ever done, to be honest, So at that point in time. So uh, it hurts for us just as much as it hurts for the guys doing 13 hours. And I've got so mm. much kudos for people that are out there for 13 hours because they're out there for five hours longer than what we are with probably the relative same intensity, really. Like it's uh, pretty impressive seeing the, the slow comers come in. That's yeah. probably going to be my end of the woods, Ross. Scott, what's your time, mate? What are you looking at doing? Oh, I'm, I'm totally guessing, but I'm assuming I'm, it's going to be like from 10 to 11 and a half hours. I'm just assuming that's what it'll be for me. 
Yep. Yeah. You're talking about combining. I've been training the last two years really with crits in mind. My sporting is not an aerobic background, you know, 10 years ago. I spent 20 years in baseball. So, you know, the shorter and harder and faster and quicker, the better for me. So, you know, sitting on a climb, holding that constant tension for 30, 40 minutes, that is really challenging. And then the other part is, you know, being able to go long distances is hard for me too. So that's where I'm coming from. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, have you got a power meter on your bike? Have you got a, I, have you got all the I equipment? Have. I have. Yeah. Well, yeah. there's, uh, so if you're, I guess if you're new to the peak challenge stuff over the last four years or so, I've, I've spent a lot of time sort of each year trying to do something different that gives each participant um, that follows the training programs a little bit of, you know, new information. And I think it was a couple of years ago, I made a, a watts per kilo chart that I took from Strava and that three peaks course. I took uh, the people that had finished. So I went through Strava stalked probably about 50 or 60 people and put them all into a big table and looked mm. at anyone with a power meter and saw what time, say, an eight-hour rider rode up to Wonga Gap um, or a 13-hour rider rode up to Wonga Gap and then looked at what the Hotham riders did for the same eight through to 13 hours and the same up the back of Falls. And I've got a nice little chart that says, okay, if you can do four watts a kilo up to Wonga and then I think it's the hour climb up Hotham, if you can do, you know, 2.8 or 3 or whatever that number is, um, Mm you'll fit into this group. So you might be able to find that chart and sort of look at it and go, all right, yeah, I'm doing 250 watts for an hour or whatever you think you can do. And then that'll tell you mm. sort of what group you'll most probably be rolling with up a climb because that's all based on the watts per kilo really. So it's been a good predictor for a lot of people so far. It does provide a little bit of trepidation. People are thinking, oh, you know, which wave do I go with? I'm not, I don't know what to do. Rah, yeah. rah, rah. When in actual fact, you know, if you've got a rough idea of how you think you're going to go, um, yeah. you know, the only pressure you put on is the stuff you put on yourself. You know, it doesn't come from anyone higher above, really. Yeah, like it is the probably the biggest question I get as we get closer and closer to peaks, like at the training camp we had last year and things like that. People are like, oh, what group should I aim with? Like, do I aim for that 10-hour group and stay with them? They want to go sub-10, so they want to aim for the 9- or 10-hour group but they're not real sure what group they should actually go with. They don't want to wait for the 10-hour group in case they can hang with the nine-hour group. So it is, and it's pretty hard. And like not all people are going to finish on the hour. It's kind of some of them are going to finish in between, you know, you know, nine hours 30 or 10 hours 30. But the main thing for that whole course is never be by yourself. <laughs> Try and be with a group because even going up a climb and if you're on a wheel, you're saving a little bit of energy. And that but the whole course really is about energy conservation. So you've got the freshest legs you possibly can to get up the back of falls at the end. It'd be good to roll through those peaks. So if we could start with Tawonga Gap, the first climb for the day after the descent, as you mentioned before, that descent, if you are on it for the first time, it does provide some uncertainty before you, you know, you're not quite sure what you're in for, but it's apart from the cold, it, it is quite an enjoyable experience to just wind your way down Falls Creek. Um, Sadly, Falls Creek, though, isn't just a straightforward descent. There's actually no. climbing going down mm. that damn climb. Like, I always roll down it, and I'm looking at my heart rate just trying to stay with the front boys. And I'm like, crikey, I'm, you know, it spikes a lot just as they punch it over all those rolling hills. But if you lose them there, you're going to lose them for the rest of the ride. You can't just gas it up to Wonga and get back on again. So yeah. my key for descending Falls Creek would be, I guess it comes from a, two different approaches. One, if you're a confident descender or if you're not a confident descender. If you're a confident descender, don't try and stay with the group. 
you know, get down the hill at whatever pace you're comfortable with. But if you're a not so strong climber, but a good descender, then you can just get to the bottom of that climb in Mount Beauty there and maybe take your jacket off. Like we have a little salvo station where you, you go to the op shop, you get a nice warm jumper from the op shop before you come up and you can chuck it at the salvos at the bottom just so you're not lugging it around with you the whole course. Um, and it sort of helps the local salvos out, which I recommend for everybody to do. Like go find an old jumper or whatever. When you get to Mount Beauty at the end, you toss it. Mm. You know, you're sort of over the coldest part of the course then. Um, and it means you don't have to have a big jacket with you all day and you don't, you know, it's, it's something you're not going to see again, but you just sort of turf it, you know, and, and give it to someone who needs it at the salvos. But yeah, so for the fast descenders, I'd say just get down the hill as you like and then tap up to Wonga nice and easy until you kind of find a group that feels like they're climbing at your pace. That's probably the best direction there. A lot of people up to Wonga and even like our eight hour group probably rides pretty hard up to Wonga. Everyone's still got super fresh legs. If you hit the first five minutes of Tawonga and you're like, crap, you know, I'm with the 10 hour group, but this feels hard harder than it probably should be for me i would probably suggest trying to stay with that group still because they may not be going that fast for one the rest of that Tawonga climb but probably up hotham and stuff as well they're probably going to slow down a little bit so if you're looking down at your power meter like chris Froome, going oh it's 10 beat 10 watts above what i you know my coach told me i should be doing i'd try and hang on to them for a little bit but if you do get to the point where your heart rate's up and you're huffing and puffing you got to back it off. Uh, I wouldn't try and go too anaerobic mm-hmm. on that first climb. In saying that, though, our wave leaders are bloody good at what they do and they know the exact pace that they need to be doing up a certain climb to get you around that course in a certain time. So if you're with the Bicycle Network wave leaders, they're most probably not going harder than they should be unless it's the eight-hour group because there's no uh, rev limiter on those boys. They just go. (laughs) (laughs) In terms of the numbers for Tawonga, you're looking at a 7.5-kilometre climb, 476 metres of elevation, 6% average. So it's it's a nice steady one just to get some juice in the legs and a bit of a pipe cleaner just for the rest of the day. Yeah, I think like coming down falls warms the legs up a bit and you sort of hit Tawonga, you know, ready to go. I love that Tawonga climb. Like that backside of Tawonga is it's super nice and steady. You know, it's got a couple of switchbacks. There's a couple of views. Like by then, you should be sort of in a rhythm. And on that Tawonga climb, you should already be starting to eat. That's the big thing everyone forgets. They do it in training and then they get in a big group of riders. Mm. And it's bloody hard to make yourself eat when there's other riders around you. You know, it's hard to reach into your pocket and grab something out and eat it while you're sort of charging up a hill. So, that's my biggest thing for newbies is really like practice eating and practice having food on your bike in spots where it's not hard to get to. Like one of those little top tube bento boxes or something that you can just grab something out really easy mm. or, and it's something easy to eat. Um, like, mate, I've had cliff bars coming out of my pocket in the cold that I can't even, they're, they're like ice blocks. You can't chew them. Mm. So having a variety of different foods that are pretty easy to chew on, even when you're puffing is super important. Yeah. That makes a massive difference. Like guys and girls that don't eat until it's too late, it's game over. Like you can't get it back. So you got to start, you should be already eating by the time you're at the bottom of falls. So that's nearly 45 minutes in. So nutrition is key. I'm loving this phase-by-phase recommendations from Stephen. So I'm just like, okay, so top of Tawonga, then what? Ross, you're talking the course in kilometre markers. I sort of talked the course through as to like what mentally you should be thinking about at certain times of the course. Yeah, for sure. Yep. Um, 
like the main thing is knowing what distance markers the feed zones are and where your special needs bags are. We can talk about them later on and what I'd suggest putting in them. Of course, there is an opportunity up the top of Toowonga to fill your bottles up again, which I know I did this year was just the first opportunity just to take stock and get ready for that descent over the other side of Toowonga then. Yeah, for sure. Like that's your first spot. I don't know if they've got food there, but they've definitely got water and stuff. But like technically, you're probably not going to drink much going down Falls Creek. So you really don't need to stop there. Like our eight hour group, the only stop we have is at the dinner plane where we fill up two bottles there and grab some food. That's halfway through. But, you know, if you're in no rush, the biggest difference I see between a 10 hour rider and a 13 hour rider is nearly the stopping time. Yeah. When I did that big breakdown off Strava, the 13-hour riders make the most of all the stops and they might stop at dinner plane 45 minutes. And that's where the biggest time savings are if they come back the next year. They're like, oh, how do I go faster up the hills? And I look at their file and I'm like, well, just go the same speed up the hills, but try and limit your stopping time at the stops and be as efficient as you can at getting in and out. doesn't mean you don't have to stop, but you can just go, you know, what have I got to do? Mental checklist. I've got to have a pee fill up my bottles, empty all the rubbish out of my pockets so I weigh a bit less and grab a bit of extra food, maybe have a quick stretch and you can be in and out in, you know, five or ten minutes. So that's definitely one of the key markers of getting around in a good time. So where's the next stop after the top of Tawonga? Where's the next food and drink stop? Well, actually, before we get to the next food stop, let's talk about getting down the back of Tawonga towards Bright because – You'll hear in the big spiel at uh, the Peaks Challenge, I think it's uh, Rebecca Lane, one of the head girls who runs it all. She does a big spiel about safety and stuff like that. And the biggest spot we always see crashes is coming down Tawonga towards Bright. There's a couple of corners that can catch you a little bit off guard. Like you can just be going a bit fast into them and we call it collarbone corner. Mm. Um, I know a few guys that in past tours of Bright and stuff have busted their pelvises and stuff coming down that climb. So just take it easy. Like there's no need to descend like a daredevil going down there. Just uh, know the corners. I think they actually put numbers on the corners and they say, all right, the dangerous one's number four and number seven. So when you get to them, just break a bit sooner than you think you need to. But once you're down there safely, it's the best spot then to be in a, as big a group as you can from Harrietville, so that bright turn off to go, uh, sorry, yeah, I think it's Germantown through to Harrietville. If you can be in a nice big group where it's rolling turns for the next, I think it's 30-something Ks, I think, you, you might only hit the front once, but for the whole time, you can just be sitting in, eating, drinking, having a chat and trying to do as little as possible before you get to Hotham. And with that many riders, like you move along there at 40 so K an hour, but you're not even on the pedals if you sit in mid-group. I did hear you mention that um, the first stop you have is the dinner plane, which tells me one thing, that you didn't stop at Harrietville and enjoy the best slice of banana bread that I've ever had in my life. My God, that was good. Really? Yeah, no, sadly, I've. I've not got to experience any of the wraps or the of the delicious foods. Usually I'm grabbing energy gels. I actually am good mates with the guys who do all the mechanic stuff up there on course. So I give him a musette feed bag to take up the dinner plane for me because he's the mechanic there. Uh, so yeah. I do a Formula One pit stop. The other boys go up to the normal tents and they have to get their own biddings and stuff. I've already got a musette with two bottles. I have a this pee. Is, um, How good is yeah, this? I'm Scott? hearing this. this, this what I'm hearing, Ross. I'm hearing a U.S. Postal Lance Armstrong operation <laughs> where everyone else gets the juice, but I get the better juice. Oh, this is yeah. intel of the highest order. This is uh, <laughs> it's my little secret to getting around. Nice. 
But uh, yeah, so I, I grab that. But there is some pretty tasty looking treats on some of those tables. That's for sure. If you get a chance, um, and anyone who's listening, make sure you have the banana bread because that is a one first class banana bread, and I haven't been able to taste anything close to it since. And that wow. stop at Harryville is actually your first opportunity to have some contact with your valet bags that you've had set out. Yeah, I think that one's, uh, is it a drop-off bag? So you can drop some clothes off there, I think. I think so, yep. If anyone's not familiar with the valet service, there's two options. You sort of have, it's essentially like one of those big express post bags with the little sealable tops in it. And you can, it's got your race number on it and you can, um, I don't know the exact spots. I'm pretty sure. So there's Dinner Plane has a, a drop-off and a pickup. So I think Dinner Plane one, you can have a food bag or it might have uh, you know a different jersey in it if you want to change to your other jersey or whatever. But there's also an empty bag you put in that bag where you can put some clothes in that uh, will come back on a bus back to the start. So they're there for you the next no- or that night or the next morning to grab. Yeah. So you can offload some gear that you will see again using that valet service, which is you know super handy if... You want to be super prepared and I'm always about everyone sort of looks at, you know, the weather in Falls Creek and goes, oh, it's 30 degrees and sunny. But up there, there's like five different weather patterns you've got to look at to get a grasp of the day because it's such a big loop. You've got to look at Falls Creek, Bright, Harrietville, Omeo and everything in between because each one of them might have, you know, they might vary by 15 degrees and some of them might have rain or not. So mm. you've got to sort of look at it globally to see what the weather's going to do and, um yeah, so where I was going with that is that you just always want to be prepared for wet weather because, mate, I've had some nice years, but I've also had a couple of years where uh, my story actually for that one is rolled on the wettest year, which was two years ago, and it was super cold. I was with the eight-hour group up the top of Hotham. Usually we're in and out, so I sort of give them, you know, I say, as we roll in, I'm like, all right, boys, you got like five minutes max. Grab what you need. We'll roll out the road, stop for a group P on the side of the road, then we go. And that year, the wet year, there was some pretty sad faces looking towards the top of, of Hotham and Dinner Plain. And I went in, did what I had to do, rolled out, kept rolling slowly, looking back over my shoulder, <laughs> looked back over my shoulder. <laughs> I was like, well, what's taking him so long? Only one guy rolled out behind me. We were the only two guys out of that eight-hour group that rode around the rest of the course. Everyone else wow. pulled out and was wearing garbage bags and stuff up the top of falls and actually got the bus home. Wow. So I think there was a Crap. few others that rode, but, yeah, I was sort of in and out and didn't even think about not continuing on. I just got going again. Yeah. And no one else came. There was two of us, and I dragged this poor bloke along the whole bloody way because he was shivering the whole time. I wasn't much better, and then he rode away from me up the back of falls. Oh, <laughs> what a prick. But I was okay. doing my job. I, I I was doing my job. I think he still went sub eight. I think I did an eight oh five or something. Yeah, I but, but also, him, so. Stephen. Also, if you can just provide his address, we'll take care of that. <laughs> uh, he's, he was a nice bloke. I've chatted to him a few times since then, actually. We're at Harrietville right so, now, and we're about to go up Hotham. Bottom now. of Hotham. Twenty nine point nine yep. kilometres. 1,303 metres of elevation, 4% average. That 4% average is sort of maybe just tempered down a little bit because there is a 10K sector in the middle that's reasonably sort of false flattish, I suppose you'd say, but um, it has some challenging times on it, this climb. It's it's an epic one. Yeah, so I guess the first part of Hotham up to the Meg, most people know the Meg. The Meg's this nasty, steep little bit that I think is, it might be 12 or 15% or something around there. It's pretty steep for probably three or 400 metres. 
And by then, sort of for our group, we've been climbing for maybe 20 minutes, half an hour. So I guess for other groups, it's sort of between half an hour and 45 minutes. And it's pretty consistent to there. And then you get to the false flat where it actually, I don't I want to say it feel, It still feels like you're going uphill because if you stop pedaling, you sort of slow mm. down, but you're definitely going a lot faster than you are everywhere else. So I guess my recommendation for everybody is there. It's the same as on the flat Eight. going from Germantown to Harrietville. If you've got a group, you can be scooting along there pretty fast instead of pedaling solo sort of thing. So if you get to the Meg and you can just hang on, just try and stay with them because it's about a kilometre past the Meg, it sort of starts to really shallow off a bit until you get to where the old, I think it's not there anymore, it's the old toll booth or the old gatehouse sort of thing. And then it starts going up again to the big Omeo turn off and stuff like that. But Hotham itself, like, Hotham's amazing. It's, like, the most beautiful climb. Like, I've ridden around Europe and stuff like that uh, a few times. And um, Hotham, when you look back over your left shoulder, back out sort of towards, I guess it's towards Brightway, where you're looking back, it's an amazing view. Mm. Um, you know, all their promo shots that you see for Three Peaks from Bicycle Network is pretty much that middle section of Hotham where just the views are amazing. I definitely think at that point in time, you'd stop chewing stem and actually enjoy the view because if you take your mind off what's going on by the beauty of the place, it makes it a bit easier for sure. Stephen, I don't know the sector. I think it might be the last steep section where you've just descended a little bit, a little dip, and then you're coming up with the yellow posts. Uh, CRB Hill, I think, is the, the name of that first sort of steep pinch going up to the top. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, because you're on the bit before, you're coming up the like on the right-hand side of the cliff and then you dip yep. down then you've come up on the left-hand side of the cliff where you can look back out over that valley. And like you say, it's a great paradox. On one hand, it's like the hardest bit of the climb because you're tired and it's a steep bit. But on the other hand, you've got this incredible view and this beauty, the contrast with it. Yeah, yeah. Like that last bit, I think by then you're up around like fourteen to 1,500 metres of, of elevation in altitude. Mm. And that's usually, like, I've raced Tour of Bride a bunch of times, and again, I've never won the damn thing, but I've come <laughs> second multiple times. But it's usually there that is my demise, because I, you get to that sort of 1,400 metres, and there's not as much oxygen, of course, up at altitude. And I get to that point, and I'm like, man, I was feeling good just back there, but you sort of hit mm. this little elevation threshold where all of a sudden, it just starts getting hard. You're like, why... Now, if you're looking at your power meter or whatever you are, if you do use that, you're like, I'm not doing as much as I was before, but this is hurting even more. Mm. And it's because of that lack of oxygen, I reckon. And, and it gets the better of you. If you go into the red there, you never really recover again. So you kind of got to watch yourself when you're going up those shorter, pinchier climbs, just mm. not to rev it too hard. Mm. But uh, yeah, like that second part of Hoffman, I reckon a lot of people by then are starting to think like, crap, I'm not even halfway yet and this is bloody hurting. But um, by the time you get to dinner plane and then you, there's a lot of descending from there, I think a lot of people start to see the finish line coming, I think. Once mm. you get dinner plane and you're halfway, which it pretty much is bang on halfway, the optimism starts creeping in, I think. so. <laughs> the vibe changes a little yeah. bit, doesn't it? You've had a bit to eat, you've put some sunscreen on, had filled the drinks up, had a Coke and away you go again. And if you're lucky enough with that little, maybe a tailwind, um, just to assist you on the way down, um, you can really enjoy that descent into Kabunga Station. Yeah, it's a completely different lot of scenery going around the back there. Like it's all just sort of farmland and cattle and stuff out there really. 
whereas it's just, it's not that sort of alpine look that you'd normally see everywhere else. Like it's pretty barren trees wise and stuff through big segments through there, but you can't underestimate it because that bit through there, like if it is windy there, it is bloody hard. Um, mm. And there's a couple of climbs that, you know, you don't really see them on the course profile because there's three big climbs in there, but there's a couple of climbs, the other side of Omeo that really can get you. That one before that little bridge, you know, that little bridge that they sort of always warn us about going over just with the cracks in the boards and stuff. But there's one climb before that that, mate, I've just in training rides and stuff, I've ridden that and I've literally cracked around those ones. Like it gets super hot around the back of the course there. And that's why you got to make sure you've got your bottles full of water at Omeo or whatever uh, if you've got to refill. But yeah, it's the closest you'll get to no man's land, I suppose, out the back there. So you want to make sure you got everything you need on the bike and in your pockets to get you through to Angler's Rest at least. So that bit there, Stephen, and those two climbs, is that about being obviously having enough staying fueled and, and that, but also is it about the pacing part as well? Bit conservative with your pacing? Yeah. Or not conservative, I think- but mindful? I would say by the time you get halfway around the course, you should be with a group of riders that are about the same ability as you. Like that natural kind of, you know, watts per kilo group game starts to come together by about there. And by then you're probably not seeing new faces. You're just seeing the same groups that you've been with sort of coming up Hotham. Uh, that's usually the way things work out, I think, is that Hotham sort maybe not to Wonga, but by the time the top of Hotham, you're usually with very similar ability riders and you should usually try and stay with them for the rest of that loop, I reckon. Mm. Like in my experience, that's what I usually see. Our eight-hour group probably starts with, oh, maybe we have some dreamers sometimes, but there's like <laughs> 30 or 40 maybe at the bottom of Hotham. And by the top, there's usually maybe only a dozen of us at the most. And then we usually stay together for the rest of the way um, until the back mm. of falls when it splinters up again, where it's sort of just free for all to the end. I'm assuming, but I've never actually seen it, but I'm assuming the same thing happens behind us where there's this natural selection goes on on the hill and you're, you're with similar ability riders if they're stopping time similar on the hills. Yeah, that's one thing I certainly noticed was generally throughout the day, you were surrounded by pretty much the same riders for the entirety yeah. of it. One of the best parts, I think, of riding in Victoria is when you've got over that first little climb out of Omeo, and when you go from there through to Angler's Rest, I reckon that yeah. is almost the best ride in Victoria. Guess who's got the con going down that going down? Oh, hello. That, uh... <laughs> this is what we <laughs> like, Scotty. Here we this go. We're we like. bloody waiting for it. He's delivered. <laughs> He's finally delivered. The, uh, we do that big loop with a bunch of guys from Melbourne from the Peak Cycles guys in Heidelberg. So Sean Young, who owns that, we run a, a G-lap, which is the gentleman's lap, but we do it over two days. And we stay at the Blue Duck Inn at Angler's Rest there the night and then ride the rest of the course back to Bright. And I think we were all charging one day, so somehow I've got the little roll. That little, that really windy descent that comes into Angler's Rest where all of a Beautiful. sudden the river, I think it's the mid-a-mid-a rivers on your right-hand side. Yep. Um, and then all of a sudden Angler's Rest pops up and it's sort of your last refuge before you tackle WTF Corner. But yeah, it's pretty amazing through there. My one tip is just watch it. If you're trying to cut the apexes of the corners, it gets lots of sand on the inside of the corners. You just got to watch that the road's clean if you are scooting through there fast. Yeah, it's one of those moments on that particular road where I think you have these moments where you think, this is why I'm riding my bike. Like for the moments like this where you're just sort of snaking, you know, along the mountain side, it's just magnificent. 
Yeah, it is like as soon as you get that sort of like false flat, like 2% downhill and you can be doing like, you know, 40k an hour easy, barely doing anything. It's kind of like it is quite enjoyable that little bit there. You just got to not get too carried away with yourself because once you get to angler's rest, you've still got a bit of a job ahead of you for sure. The back of falls, 22.6 kilometres, 980 metres elevation, 4% average. Disregard the 4% average. Don't even think about that. That's a bit diluted, I think. Not telling the truth, yeah. It's all about (laughs) when you turn left and you've got 200 clicks in the legs and you look up and you see a wall in front of you. Yeah, so that left-hand sort of sharp turn off the mid-a-mid-a road there, it's bloody steep. And that's the first, well, it's not the first time of the day where you click gears and you're like, yeah, shit, that is actually all the gears I've got. Yeah, yeah. I wish I had. No more, no more. I wish I had, you know, another chain ring smaller. But yeah. um, And that's why I say to everybody every year, they're like, oh, what gears should I run? And I always say get the most compact Smalls, group set yeah. you can possibly get. Like top end speed is not a problem, but being able to spin it, you know, above 75 RPM up that back of that climb, it can really be the make or break, especially when your legs are starting to cramp and it's hot and you're just running out of gas, being able to just stick it in the easiest gear and tap away at a pace that's actually you know, sustainable is the secret to getting up back of that climb. Like, yeah, you do see it and go, you know, what the fuck? It's literally, it's freaking. <laughs> Funnily enough, though, the first time I ever saw, I don't know if it's got that name from going up it or coming down it. Because when you bomb down it for the first time ever and you don't know that road at all, the first yeah. time I ever rode it, that little T intersection pops up on you so fast at about 70K an hour. And I just remember like full front and rear brake, like nearly locking them up, trying to not go through the intersection going, what the fuck? Slowing down. Because it just comes out of nowhere. You've been switched off for the last half an hour, just going down this awesome descent. And the next thing there's a bloody stop sign in front Mm. of you. That steep bit out of the corner, how long is that first ramp? I reckon it's... It's about four or five Ks before you get to sort of a little bit of a flat spot, maybe. Okay. I think it is. Like, usually by then, man, I'm starting to lose cognitive ability as well, to be honest. Mm. Like, you're sort of just looking up the hill going, when's this little mm. rise going to finish? Um, so it's kind of, yeah, to be honest, I can't remember. It just seems to drag on for a long time, though, that's for sure. Mm. Like, the next little stop is Trap Yard Gap, and that takes a long time to come. Mm. Um, and there's food and drink there? Uh, there there's only, so that one's got the big reputation for where you can grab your Coke. So they pretty much hand Coca-Cola's out at that little stop there. It's probably one of the better cans of Coke you'll ever have, Scotty. Just yeah, I'll yeah. tell you oh, that comfortably right sure. now. Yeah, Steve, yeah. you might not have witnessed it due to the quality of the group that you're riding in, but one thing that astounded me riding it this year was um, when it was really steep in those first five or six K, obviously, was the amount of people who just had to get off and were carrying their shoes and, you know, wheeling yeah. their bikes. My first thought was, dude, you got to get back on your bike. How are you going to do that? You know, like, yeah, you yeah. going to walk the whole way or what? I've never seen it firsthand, but I hear the stories every year of the carnage that is that, you know, it is a war zone on that hill where, you know, if you cramp or you stop, if you actually stop, even if you stop voluntarily to wait for a mate, like getting going again is hard because the hill's so steep, like trying to clip back in and get moving again. In one of the videos I did last year, I sort of funnily in in the edit I did for the videos I put up, I showed everyone what the postie was where you ride from side to side, zigzagging up the hill. 
bicycle network made me edit that bit out because essentially you're not allowed to cross the road like, you're not, not allowed to cross oh, the line that oh you yeah. better not put that in but i'm like but that's what everyone's going to be doing anyway <laughs> just going from white post to white post just taking a bit of the steepness off it by zigzagging but yeah look that's where the gearing comes in that's where like within the programs i put in i really try and encourage everybody to be comfortable out of the saddle as well you know, like some guys, when I start on the program, they might not be even be able to stay out of the saddle up a climb for longer than a minute. They're like, oh, it just feels weird. I'm like, keep doing it until you get used to it. Because being able to change it up, going up that climb on a steep climb like that, out of the saddle for a little bit, in the saddle for a little bit, just unloads the quaddies a bit when you're out of the saddle and you sort of learn to, you know, use those glutes a bit more. By then, usually your lower back's starting to get sore. Mm. Um, you know, you just want to have a little bit of variety in your position. So yeah, practice out of saddle riding if you can. I'm on some steep climbs just to get comfortable doing it. So you've got that choice when you actually get to the hill. Good intel. Absolutely. The biggest thing though is like it's hard for everyone. That last climb, like man, I'm battling demons up that climb. Like on fresh legs. I'm loving it. Like I'm having a great time scooting up there, racing mates. But right at that bottom corner is 200 kilometers in. You tick on that corner, mate. You've just got to put a smile on your face by then. Then it's the mental game of just trying to stay happy and not fall into this pit of depression because it just sucks. Mm. It's a good point you make, though, Steve. Regardless, like everyone's going to be battling, then everyone's going to be hurting. So you, you, the worst thing you could do would be to think, oh other people are getting up with no worries and, and i'm doing it tough and therefore you know you're making it much harder for yourself yeah but like if you look behind you there's probably a bunch of guys or girls that are doing it just as hard as you are so it's not yeah. just you the only one you just know and you know i guess that's where the camaraderie starts to really come in like if you've got some mates around you by then hopefully they're they're like yeah let's all finish together and they're trying to give you some encouragement the Lantern Rouge riders that are bringing those 13-hour riders in, like, mate, some of the stories I've heard with them, you know, there's guys wanting to pull out, um, you know, when they're only 5Ks from home sort of thing or a couple of Ks from the top mm. of that hill. But then sadly, mm. vice versa, there's, or conversely, there's people who are sadly getting pulled from the course because they're not within the time frame and they're not within the time limit anymore. So, mm. you know, if you can keep moving, keep moving. Like, it's all about don't just... Stopping for a couple of minutes just because it's hurting, it's still going to hurt when you get back on and start riding again. So you may as well just not stop. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. that's the best thing I've learned from all the big bike packing races I do. So, like the 560K one I did up to Albury from Melbourne, the rule is like limit stopping time as much as you can. Even if you're just crawling along at 5K an hour, just don't stop, just keep moving. And you apply that over the whole day. You know, and there might be 45, 50 minutes of non-essential stopping time. We're like, oh, I'm just going to grab something out of my pocket, so I'm going to pull over. It's like, we'll make the effort to get it out without stopping. That accumulates mm. so much time by the end of the day. That's the make or break for some people to get there in, in the 13 hours or 10 hours. And from mm. that trap yard gap coke that you'll have, there's some rolling hills that can't be underestimated as well. There's some quite pinchy parts as you get to that open plains towards the top of falls. And then if you've dug deep and you've been able to get over that, that feeling of seeing that lake as you start yeah, to yeah. descend back in is, <laughs> it's indescribable almost. It, it takes a long time to get around that lake though, doesn't it? You see it and you're like, oh yeah, I know that's not, because most people when they do their warm up ride the day before, just ride the course in reverse a little bit around that big lake at the top. So you kind of know it, but yeah, when you first see it, it seems to take a long time to get, oh, I think mm. it's 30 Ks or something. I think, yeah, 
how far is it? It must be 15Ks or something, is yeah, it? Yeah, it would from be pretty close to that. Yeah, so once you reach the plateau at the top, I think it's called Strawberry Hill or Raspberry yep. Hill or something at the top there. Yeah, it's still a fair way to home, but you know, by then you're kind of home free. You cross that little bridge or that big bridge at the lake. It's downhill home from there, baby. Enjoy it. Smoke the cigar as you come into the finish line, Scotty. Is it a downhill run across the line or is it a little drag up to the no, it's a, yeah, it's a downhill run through that main part down through the Falls Creek Village there where the view's out to your right, but then you hang a left into the little, where the ski lift and where you essentially start it. Now, things change a bit now with COVID. We had to change the start this year for 2021 to give us a bit more room to spread everybody out. So they went back up the road, but usually you turn left into the village itself. Um, and then there's a big, you know, finished gantry and stuff there then. Mate, it's like if you've got family there waiting for you, there's it's amazing. Like I cross the line and there's bugger all people there, but it's the same with like at a nine man triathlon where the slower your time you are, the more people there are at the finish line. And mate, it's a pretty yeah. cool feeling crossing the line when there's 500 people you don't even know, you know, all cheering you on as you cross yeah. the line. Yeah, it's a pretty cool feeling. Do the old James Bond adjust the cufflinks and just uh, present? You know, well, I'd probably uh, just suggest to keep your hands on the handlebars and cross <laughs> the line because by then you're so cooked that any uh, no-handed victory salutes will probably leave you uh, laying on the concrete wishing you hadn't done it. <laughs> just zip up the half-wheel and jersey, Scotty. That's all we need to do. Yeah, my motivation for fueling and the whole day would be to cross that line looking like a champion where people go, sure, how is he in this slow group? How is this possible? He looks so good. Yeah. It's amazing what happens when you get a sniff of the finish line. Once the brain's a funny thing, like you can be cooked. <laughs> Isn't it? You can be cooked from like the halfway mark. And then as soon as you get a sniff of that finish line, and I'm guessing it's just the adrenaline of actually finishing, the brain sort of just goes, oh, mate, okay, I'm off safety mode now where I thought, you know, yeah. I was concerned for the body that I'm attached to. And it just goes, mate, just enjoy it. And all these endorphins come. And the next thing, you know, yeah, you probably got the energy to pop a mono if you're capable of it. But for the rest of the ride, you've just been pulling that carcass around. <laughs> but, yeah, it's a pretty cool feeling at the end and uh, grabbing a beer or whatever at the end and then just sitting on the grass on the hill and just sort of laying down and your breathing comes back to normal and stuff. And, you know, you're just exhausted but exhilarated all at the same time. It's kind of a feeling I... You know, I love that feeling of just being completely knackered. The job's done. Hopefully you got the time that you wanted and you just kind of lay there for a little bit just in silence and just try and stand up and go, oh, this is is a bit of staggering around for a while. So you mentioned about the mood you can have and and obviously um, goes up and down throughout the day and yeah, a large part of that can be to do with your nutrition. And I know on the Bicycle Network website, you do go through some videos that reference, you know, nutrition for the day and tips and stuff you, you'll do well to keep up with. But is there any ideal or maybe um, top nutrition tips that you can give some of the listeners now? I guess the basics of sports nutrition for these sort of stuff is it starts before the day itself. Like you've got to practice your nutrition strategy in your training rides. That's the biggest thing. Find the foods that you like, research what nutrition they've actually got out on course. So usually they've got winner's bars and gels, um, some of the soft chews and then that normal food, like you said, like banana bread and some wraps. Like maybe go to the supermarket and buy yourself some of the winner's bars beforehand just to see if you can tolerate them. Um, Mm. Like some people, you know, mate, I've eaten so many cliff bars these days that if I smell a cliff bar, I'm freaking out of there. I can't stand (laughs) them anymore. 
So it really is a matter of finding foods that you like to eat. And look, it is, it's an eating contest. Like the best way to put an ultra endurance event, which this nearly falls into, is it's an eating contest. Mm. The more you can eat, the better you're going to be. But you've just got to learn how much you can eat. Our general guidelines are about 60 grams of carbohydrate per hour is about as much as the stomach can sort of tolerate. And for the intensity we're riding at for this ride, that's about the right goal. So if you add that up, like 60 grams of carbohydrate is essentially maybe one gel and one bar per hour. You know, it's a fair bit, but, you know, in the first half an hour of the ride, you're probably not going to eat anything because you're going downhill. So you've got to rely upon your breakfast to get you through. The day itself should just be follow your plan, but then getting the stuff that you can't practice sometimes. It's a pretty early start for me. Like we start at, what is it, 7 o'clock or 6.30 or something? Most people are lining up by 6 o'clock or something. Yeah. Like I'm not a morning person. There's two things I like to try and achieve on a morning like that. One is get a coffee in so that I can do number twos and clean myself out. (laughs) If that doesn't happen all day, I'm kind of carrying it around with me and it's something that I don't want. Mm. Um, But two is trying to eat food in the morning, like a big bowl of breakfast, you know, at six in the morning when you're super nervous is bloody hard to eat. Like you just don't feel like eating it. My go-to is just something easy, like an up and go. I'll have like two or three up and goes, you know, liquid breakfast essentially, because you get your hydration in. So you get some liquid going and you get some carbohydrate going and then essentially you're okay for the day then. I always try and do that as soon as I wake up, I try and drink and eat so that you give yourself enough time before you got to get to the start line so that you can kind of take a pee for what you drank in the morning, if that makes sense. Like you don't want to be riding up to Wonga and already need a pee because then you're going to have to stop when your group's not stopping and then you lose your group. So, you know, that's pretty critical sometimes when it comes to can you stay with the group you want to be with as if you need a pee or not. There's ways around it. And I guess that's making sure you drain that bladder before the start line. Mm. But I guess the other key points for the nutrition for the day is I say variety is pretty good. So I like to get in as much real food as you can. Like the faster we go, like the eight-hour group, it's pretty hard to get in real food. But if you are stopping, try and eat rolls or, you know, on my big long train ride, stopping and eating a salad roll and a pasty and a, a big chocolate milk or something like that really keeps me going all day. Whereas if I'm eating bars and gels all day, I usually don't feel as good at the end of the day. If I can finish a big, long training ride and I've eaten enough real food throughout the ride, when I get home, I'm not like ravaging the cupboards looking for food. If I can just walk in and go, all right, yeah, I'll make myself a drink, maybe a tiny little snack, and then I'll wait for dinner. That usually means I've fueled properly during the ride. Good indicator. If you go hypoglycemic and you're just, you know, we've had those rides where you're just dreaming of what you're going to eat. And I'm like, I want to have toast and I'm going to have some ice cream and then I'm going to have that. Usually by that point, it's game over. And the next day you'll wake up and you'll feel crap because you've actually gone hypoglycemic and the body's released stress hormones and stuff to try and, you know, nurse you through it. So, Mm. um, yeah, practice it in training for sure. We're getting some bloody real good intel. That's brilliant for sure. Brilliant. And remembering all your feed bags or your valet bags, you can put your favorite stuff in there, yeah. usually at mm. dinner plane or even at Angler's Rest. At Angler's Rest, I've been known to stick like a Red Bull in there. You know, I'm the biggest Snickers fan in the world, so usually I'll stick a Snickers in there just so I've got something that I'm looking forward to. 
like yeah. something that you wouldn't normally have that's a bit of a treat. It might be a couple of Tim Tams. It might be whatever your favourite thing is. Put it in that valet bag at Angler's Rest or at Dinner Plane. So when you get there, you're like, oh, shit, I forgot I had this. How good is that? And you kind of get excited. So uh, it's just something to look forward to, I think. Yeah. And that's all you need. you got to break it up. Break that 235Ks up into chunks. Like you break it up into sections so that it's not this big daunting long ride. Essentially, it's four sections that you've got to plan for each one. Um, and then once you tick one off, you move on to the next one. Mm. You've mentioned what? wave groups quite a bit, Steve, and, and you're actually a wave leader. And yep. each hour increment has wave leaders. Um, so for those who may not be aware of it, uh, when there is stops, so major stops, I think you mentioned before, you guys give that group a heads up. So whether it be five minutes or two minutes, there's regular calls out. You don't need to stress that you won't miss your group when they're about to head off. Yeah, the wave leaders are pretty good. You know, as I said, I'm the eight-hour one and we have less rules than the others. I know like all the other groups, they'll call out, they're like leaving in 10 minutes or leaving in five minutes or they'll say the time that they're rolling out. They're like, we're rolling out at 12.35 or whatever it is. It's not like you got to rush around like a headless chook to get stuff done. You've just got to be organized when you get there as to your mental checklist. It's like, all right, I need to pee. And be smart, like look at the portable and stuff. If there's no one there, make the most of it so you don't have to wait for anyone. Just go straight to it, have a pee, then go get your food as opposed to thinking about the food first, then you got to wait in line. Just mm. small things like that, you got to be pretty strategic in, you know, not standing around dawdling. You just kind of want to make the most of the time you've got. Mm. And that goes for all of the rest stops. Like, you know, by the time you get to Angler's Rest, you could pretty much get the rest of the way on your own. Um, all the wave leaders are pretty good at encouraging everybody. Like there's no surging in the bunches. They try and get everyone rolling through. And look, I'd encourage you to participate in rolling through. Like it's not going to be that much work. Don't just sit on the back and get a free ride the whole way. Like try and pull your weight if you can, because you know, if everyone helps, as soon as that people start seeing it, like, oh, I'm not rolling through because he's not rolling through, then. You know, I've mm. done so many handicap races where that happens and the next thing, no one's working and no one's going anywhere. Mm. Check out the Bicycle Network website. There's some great videos that Stephen's in. He actually takes you through the course. There's three parts to it, which we've sort of gone through uh, a little bit there, but, you know, some great videos there on nutrition, your preparation, training and all those sorts of things. So I urge listeners to check that out. It's well worth it. Yeah, there's a couple of them up on the Bicycle Network website. And if you find those ones, you'll find, I think there's probably like 20 or 30 videos now that over the last four years I've got up. So they're on my YouTube website. Oh, sorry, YouTube channel, which is, I think, just Stephen Lane HP Tech, I think. So there's a bunch of them there. So just, you know, go to town and watch most of those ones. Like each year over the last four years, I've tried to put in some new info each time. So I'm not regurgitating the same stuff. But if you watch all of them, then you'll sort of get the gist of pretty much all of these tips we've spoken about today. We cover in those videos for sure. Mm. And the training programs on there, Ross, as you mentioned, I had a squeeze through there. They're comprehensive, comprehensive resources for people to utilize. So that's awesome that you've done that, Stephen. Yep, look, they're up on the on that Bicycle Network website for free if you want it. So they're just a PDF you can print out and stick on the fridge. They start on the 22nd of November, which is 16 weeks out from the event. If you are someone that loves all of the, the data stuff, I've also got them for sale on the Training Peaks website. So you can upload the sessions. 
if someone's someone who loves doing Zwift workouts on erg mode and stuff like that, the training peaks ones have the erg files built in. So you just jump on, hit start, and it sort of locks you and works you through the workout. Yeah. So they're super handy. I sell a bunch of them. But yeah, look, look at the programs. If you look at the training programs and go, oh crap, there's no way I can stick to that because, you know, I've got kids, I'm working, it's hard to get it done. Like look at what the main sessions are and just try and sneak them in when you can. You know, even if it's two or three of the key sessions each week, which is usually what most of the programs have got. It's like two or three key sessions. Midweek, it's sort of one or two hours. And then on the weekend, it's as long as you can get in really. Um, mm. Just look at those key sessions and look, the basics of it is you look at the three peaks course and it's a lot of riding up hills. All you really need to do is go practice riding up a hill if you've got one. And if you haven't, try and do a long, consistent effort, whether it's on the trainer or whether it's on beach road, on the flat roads or something. Just try and stick it in a gear and just have constant tension in the legs. It's, yeah, you're blessed if you've got hills at your doorstep, but if you don't, you've kind of got to try and adapt things so that you can replicate the demands of the course as best you possibly can. Mm. Fantastic, mate. Early bird entries are open until November the 28th. Now, there is a code you can enter. You can enter half wheeling at your checkout for a, a little bit of an extra discount for those who- 70% um, off, isn't it? Well, I'm not sure if it's 70, Scotty, but it's 75. somewhere- yeah. <laughs> they should just leave it at uh, the, the standard price, but it gives you two hours off your finish time. Exactly right. I'd really take that. <laughs> That'd be bloody good. Hey, Steve, we're absolutely wrapped that you could come on to our podcast, to this episode. It's fantastic to talk to you. Some of the intelligence you've been able to give us has been first awesome. class, mate. We really appreciate it. And we look forward to catching up with you. Um, not in the eight-hour group, Scotty. We're not. We're not going to be mixing in with him. Uh, I dare say you guys are. I haven't even asked this. You guys are in Melbourne, aren't you? You guys are Melbourne based. Yeah, Scotty yeah, is. So we'll be. Yeah. So remember, there's uh, the training rides that Bicycle Network put on. So if you're Melbourne based, I'd always suggest to everyone to try and keep an eye on when those training rides come out because for first timers at Three Peaks, they're really, really good to be able to guide you through as to what group you're going to be with. Um, the guys like. Like Crossy and James that take some of those rides, they'll ride at their 10 hour pace. And you're like, hey, I kept up with them in the training ride. I guess I'm going to ride with them on the day. Yeah. So they're super handy for anyone. There's some in Sydney. I think there's some in Adelaide as well. Now that all this whole COVID saga is sort of starting to dissipate, hopefully they can lock a few more dates in and people can check those out on the website. Mm. Also, Steve, where can people contact you or where can they find you uh, with HP Tech? Uh, easiest one would be just to jump on the website. So just uh, even on Instagram, shoot me a direct message on Instagram if you've got specific questions about Three Peaks. I'm just Dr. S. Lane on Instagram. Uh, it's uh, just hptech.com.au on the website. Um, you can shoot me an email through there. But um, yeah, like I get plenty of questions, just people asking about the training programs and things like that. Glad to help everybody out as best I can to make sure their day goes smoothly. Plus, it's so nice to meet. Like, I dare say, if I don't see you guys beforehand, I'll see Scott up there if he does it next year on the day. Like, if you see me walking around the village, just come and say good day and have a chat. It's always pretty nice to hear everyone's stories about their training. And I've never had a bad story yet that that training hasn't got them through in their desired time. Usually, they, you know, they go significantly faster than they thought they were going to. 
So, um, yeah, super nice to hear firsthand those stories and um, catch up for a beer with a few boys afterwards as well. Absolutely. Well, we do plan on um, getting up there and maybe, you know, we're going to make a bit of a weekend of it. So we hopefully do a little bit of a podcast at some stage, maybe a podcast the day before and maybe even the day after it just to see how things went. So I think uh, you do a rolling Mike Scott up and he can roll around the course and do a rolling commentary. That'd be pretty cool. As long as there's a guy, someone on editing, you know, with the censorship, that's that'll be work out well. <laughs> Bit of swearing, you reckon? Well, if I've got the energy for it. Ross will be doing it. He'll be tapping away beautifully, but I'll, I'll be a bit behind him and, um, yeah, I'll have to dig deep, I think, but that's okay. Uh, so here's my question for you. On a scale of uh, zero to 10, 10 being the, as fit as you want to be at Three Peaks, where are you now? What number? Uh, where are you, Scotty? I, you go, Ross. I haven't been doing a lot of climbing lately, but I'm in reasonable nick, so I'm probably at around a eight. Hey, so nice. I just need yeah, to well, get up towards ten. Sixteen weeks of sharpening up, and you'll be yep. fine. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like I would be maybe a six. The two ingredients I need is length of rides. You know, that sort of just general ability to stay in the saddle for ages, and um, yeah, climbing not doing any long climbing. So they're the two main ingredients, which are the main features of that event, of course. Nice. Yeah, well, I'm with you. I reckon I'm a, I'd call, I'm relatively fit for going long now, but I'm not fast. I'm about a six as well as where as I want to be. So, and mate, I'd, I've always said my coach is Mike Larkin, the weatherman. Maybe it's Jane Bunn <laughs> these days. But, like, if it's sunny, I ride a bike. If it's not, I'm not riding a bike. So it's sunny <laughs> now, usually. So it's getting a bit better here in Melbourne, so I can get a few more Ks mm. in. I've promised myself I'm not drinking through till till a bit after Christmas when we've got Masters Nationals. So I'm off the booze trying to lose just a couple of kilos. I'm not too far off where I want to be, but just try and set a few good habits in place. And that's what I suggest for everybody else to do now. Like we might have a 16-week training program and you can bump your FTP up by 50 watts, but if you can lose 5 or 10 kilos before March, that's free speed there. It, It just makes sense to try and trim down if that's something that you desire to do. Fantastic. Thanks again for coming on, Steve. Thanks, boys. Yeah, awesome, it's been mate. a pleasure, and I look forward to seeing you up there. I hope your journey goes well in the training process. Absolutely. Thanks, mate. That's awesome. Cheers. Thanks, guys. Uh,